welcome back for this week's episode of After the Credits. I'm, as always, your host, Matthew Monagle. I'm both a feature writer for Film School Rejects and a host of this podcast. And I'm joined this week by a, a special guest who is going to talk about a movie I think he's going to be pretty excited to see. Um, Kyle, can you tell our guests a little bit about yourself and uh, where they can find your writing online? Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle. I'm, uh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be on here. Um, you can find my writing uh, all over the place. Uh, I've written for Pace Magazine, uh, Brooklyn Magazine, um, Esquire, The Village Voice, and Slate, uh, and the Film School Rejects, of course. I, I work for them as well, which is a lovely place, place to be. Um, yeah, the should I say what film we're talking about? Or let's start off by having you just talk about this film and why um, why you were so visibly excited, I guess, and why why you're you're looking forward to this so much that I actually reached out to you and said I need you to be my guest for this movie. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm I, I went through a very intense phase as a kid um, growing up, uh, being fascinated with Agatha Christie. Um, and she was the crime novelist, the British crime novelist, whose work spans, I think, like six or seven decades, a good six or seven decades. And she's especially famous for And Then There Were None, which was published um, in the early 30s, I believe, and has been made into several different films, most recently for the BBC in 2014 or 2015. Um, and then Murder on the Orient Express, which was published in 1934, I believe. Or 1936. Um, I should know that because I've been doing research on it. But um, Murder on the Orient Express features her one of her most famous um, detectives, Hercule Poirot. He's this little Belgian de- detective who's like in his, I think, 50s or 60s, and he's very stout and round, and he's described as be- having an egg-shaped head and this fantastic mustache. Um, and he's very fastidious, and he's a little bit camp. He reads a little bit camp on the page. Um, and he's in over 70 novels and short stories of hers. And she grew after a period of time. She He was introduced in her first novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, in 1920. And after a while, she began to hate the character, kind of in the same way that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle began to hate Sherlock Holmes. And <clears throat> I've just been really... I, I'm not quite sure why i went through that phase but i i did um and kind of over the period of my life i've like kept up with how my reactions have changed or evolved with the books and with different adaptations and so murder on the orient express in particular has been adapted a few times um it was originally it was originally published in the late 30s and then there was a film adaptation in 1974 directed by Sidney Lumet with Albert Finney. Um, and he, Albert Finney is the only actor of the five or six screen actors that have played Poirot to earn any sort of Academy Award nomination. And that one in particular is interesting because it launched this fad where um, you could adapt properties, particularly Agatha Christie properties, and like throw lots of money at them at the production value throw lots of money in terms of the cast like the the 1974 film has lauren bacall and ingrid bergman and anthony perkins and sean connery and all these other actors it's just so it's a star-studded cast and they tried doing it again for the next maybe half decade or so uh with peter ustinov because albert Finney didn't come back and peter ustinov played poro uh, about six times, three theatrical features, that, and one of which include Death, Death on the Nile with Mia Farrow, 
Evil Under the Sun and Appointment with Death. Um, and so there's that adaptation in 1974. There was a 2001 adaptation with Alfred Molina, and that was like one of the only times that Agatha Christie has been modernized in such an explicit way. They've tried to update the tone of certain um, certain Poirot or Agatha Christie adaptations, but they've never been like explicitly transporting the story into a contemporary uh, time period. And there's that one, which is kind of weird and not very good, honestly. Alfred Molina is actually okay. I was watching a bit of it last night. Um, and then there was uh, the version that they did for the television series. The television series ran from 1989 to 2013, and through the entire series, one man played him, and it was David Suchet. And he is generally acknowledged as like the definitive um, Hercule Poirot. He is obsessive in his detail in, in getting the character right, and he has this sense of ownership over the character, which is really fascinating. There's a documentary that you can find on YouTube that was produced for BBC, even though the series debuted on uh, aired on ITV, which is a Brit- another British channel. Um, but it's called Being Poro, and it's kind of like a little bit of a history of the character, but mostly about David Suchet's relationship with the character and he's just like so intense and in how he embodies every aspect of who Hercule Poirot is he he made a list of 93 things that he thinks is integral um to playing that character um and everything from like a minute detail to like the number of sugar cubes that he puts in his coffee um which is I, I think is wild and, and totally fascinating and another thing that I am interested and so like and now that we have the 2017 adaptation which is being directed by Kenneth Branagh and it also stars him um, and one of the things that I'm really interested in is how Branagh is going to play um, Poirot because the issue that I found with a lot of late period adaptations of Agatha Christie's work is that they're really self-serious in a way that I don't think necessarily suits the material. I try to generally compartmentalize um, kind of the source source material and adaptation because I recognize that regardless of whether it's Harry Potter or Poirot or James Bond or whatever, that they're inherently different uh, mediums and that any interpretation is pretty valid. Um, but like, there's something light um not frivolous necessarily but i imagine agatha christie reading agatha christie books like the way that one reads a book by the campfire it's not like life-threatening or or mired in this like deep moral quandary although some of the characters may be experiencing that and so a lot of the late period adaptations that um are part of the poro tv series and then the um, Miss Marple also got like a reboot in the late 2000s. One of the episodes is actually directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, which you may not know. Um, and then uh, Tommy and Tuppence, which was another Agatha Christie set of detectives, which are lesser known. Um, they also got a reboot a couple years ago. The big issue is that although they're like throwing a lot of money at these productions to improve the quality they've taken a little bit too much of um, a page from the from like superhero movies I think in that they think that uh, a very dour tone automatically means that it's good and that's not necessarily true like some of it doesn't make sense especially given the 
um, essence of the characters or the essence of the stories. So this particular Kenneth Branagh ap- adaptation is going to be interesting because of how it wants to be, I think, a, a weird line between really prestigious and also really, really serious. And I'll be interested to see like what happens with that. Now, Kyle, you brought up um, you brought up the James Bond franchise just sort of in passing, but I'm I'm curious too for people that might not be as familiar with Agatha Christie's work, um, the way that you describe kind of her, um, her her novels, their adaptations. Certainly, there's a sense of, of um, the Britishness of the novels as well as if you start to compare that to Albert Broccoli's work on the the Bond franchise, it seems that these are sort of two interesting parallel franchises that have been going for a long time. Kind of one is more posh than the other, of course. Is if, if Murder on the Orient Express 2017 is your first introduction to this character in this universe, is it kind of a good thing maybe to approach it as the same serialized Bond-esque universe, that there's a lot of different types of adaptations, a lot of different styles of ownership that come into play with them? Is there any kind of parallel there, or am I reaching? No, I think that does make sense, because... Uh... What what I think is useful about the James Bond series, at least, is that they're self-contained, and you don't really have to have any previous knowledge of the other Bond films or adaptations of James Bond to understand like what this thing is. They exist kind of wholly in and of themselves, with the exception of Quantum of Solace, which is like the only direct sequel. And I like to pretend that that movie does not exist because it's bad. Fair, totally fair. Um, uh. I may be like being mean to that one, but uh, the Agatha Christie adaptations, you can go in totally blind. It's certainly nice and helpful to be aware of like previous of the books or previous adaptations, but they won't they'll only like inform um, the thing that you're watching in as much as like a source of comparison or a reference point because all the mysteries are for the most part all the mysteries don't have anything to do with one another they're separate cases and that's very much true of murder on the orient express like the 1974 film was like the 1974 film was basically made to to confirm that there was still interest in her work in the mainstream in general because although she's like one of the highest uh, or best-selling novelist of all time um she her work like is pretty it appeals to people who like reading mysteries and not everyone likes reading mysteries not even everyone likes watching mysteries and so that murder on the orient express kind of the original was this introduction to this character makes sense and that this new adaptation could also be an introduction um to Hercule Poirot I I welcome with open arms although I as a snob will probably if I don't like this movie I will have lots of words to say yeah that is totally um, but I, I think it's it'll be interesting to to see like as with James Bond the different actors that have played with uh, played Hercule Poirot they've had different interpretations but they have generally stuck to certain key ideas of what his character acts like or who his character is internally kind of the um philosophical struggles that he may or may not deal with what's interesting at least in terms of the 1974 adaptation and the 2008 adaptation that was for the tv one um is that not only is it tonally different but the tone the tonal difference is particularly important in the end which I won't spoil, but the way that that character deals with it, um, David Suchet's performance is 
much um, it is rooted in a kind of um, heightened emotional realism that I think for me is foreign because I have never felt that that was ever the goal or any intention within the books like th- these are really bourgeois upper class people the I think Agatha Christie's books mostly exist in a fantasy world of like rich English people for the most part which is not to say that there aren't certain emotional truths in the in the books but like they mostly exist in this world of England that doesn't exist and these characters don't really exist um but I'm wondering like where this new film will if it will bridge the gap if it is looking to be like more emotionally honest or less so um but yeah I'll, I'll be curious so what do you think uh, then that knowing his filmography and his history, what do you think Kenneth Branagh brings to the table with this? I think most, most, uh, if anybody thinks of him these days, because it's been a few years since he was sort of the all, all in auteur that I think a lot of people know him from the nineties as, you know, people think of him as a literary adapter, somebody that has taken many Shakespeare novel or many Shakespeare plays and turned them into feature films that have lavish attention to detail that have a lot of, you know, high society period trappings, things of that nature. Is he even setting aside his performance as the title character for a moment? Is he the right person to direct a murder on the Orient Express film? I would have said yes, if this were 1997, but I don't think I would have known how to podcast works in 1997 because I was four. Um, I, I, given his passion for, literary adaptations he puts a lot of detail in them like his hamlet is one of the only is one of the only versions of the full text of that play that exists it's like the full text it's four plus hours long it's shot on 65 millimeter um as is murder on the orient express and he seems to take things very seriously which i appreciate um, and I, I like I appreciate someone taking the, the work seriously that they want to do justice to the work they ha- they have a particular vision for for whatever they're adapting um, for murder on the Orient Express it's the last few films that he's done have been like Cinderella right he did Cinderella and the Thor movies and there was and a Jack Reacher kind of in there somewhere as well yeah the, what he did a Jack Reacher wow yeah he did the, he did or, uh, no, not a Jack Reacher, I'm sorry. He did a Jack Ryan, the like the attempted reboot of the Jack Ryan franchise. Oh, okay. Even so, if judging from the trailers, I don't I don't really understand what it is trying to do. Um especially having the baggage of knowing other adaptations. Um which is why I'm so interested in, in this film. Not only because it's murder on the Orient Express not only because it's an Agatha Christie adaptation, but because, like, I don't know what it's what it wants to be. I am not entirely sure what it is. Its vision as this something being marketed, other than like kind of a dour mystery that has a twist ending. And I, I'm given the the reliance that they are pushing um, with a twi- with a twist ending, I. I'm wondering if they are changing the ending in any way. But anyway, um, to answer your question, I think when he had a little bit more restraint and didn't have as much money, or like he was putting, he's allocating his money in different ways that were a little bit more reserved or a little bit 
at least formally reserved. Like, there are a lot of Dutch angles in the Thor movies that he did, and I don't really understand what the intent of that is. I don't think it adds anything to to that film. Um, and there's a weird kind of facile artifice to the Cinderella movie that he did that I also don't quite understand. I mean, like, I understand it intellectually, but I don't quite know why that kind of choice was made because I, I don't think it makes the film better. I think it detracts from it in, in many ways. But like with Hamlet or Much Ado About Nothing or Henry V, um, there's there's very much a dedication or an in, or um, an interest in rooting those stories into a very tangible world. Whereas he has moved away from that, I think, in his more recent films. I didn't see the Jack Ryan movie, but... Even in the trailers, you can see that a lot of it seems to be CGI, and I'm wondering, like, what what purpose will that artifice have? What purpose will that kind of taking th- that sense of reality augmented have for the film as a whole? Um, and I'm very I'm very curious about that in particular because of the way that the um, ending unfolds. Because I, um, when we do talk about it, if we if we do do spoilers um i think the ending is actually quite relevant to a lot of the discussions in in the contemporary cultural climate today and i wonder if the the cgi stuff will have will will be tied to that at all at least in kind of a um in kind of a weird formal way so i yes and no i guess is my answer like yes, back when he wasn't do- when he wasn't like doing a lot of things that weren't to- totally necessary for the story. Well, you you brought up um, this. This will be our, our last talking point, I think, before we we dive into the the final score. But you brought up the trailers. Obviously, I like to ask um, all of my guests when they come on the show how they consume sort of the pre-release material: trailers, posters, clips, all of that nature. And normally, this would be an opportunity for us to discuss. Um, what we've seen, what we've liked, and what we haven't seen. But for this, i got to go more specific, because everybody walked away from the trailer, trailers for Murder on the Orient Express thinking one thing, which was, why Imagine Dragons? So is there is there any yes. world is there any world in which that is appropriate and it is a contextually or diegetically right choice of a song, or is this an awkward mashup of, of trying to take something popular and something maybe a little old and fitting them together in a way that makes them both relevant? It's definitely the second one. It's kind of ridiculous. Oh, too bad. I thought you. Oh, I thought you were gonna have something like, no, it's the perfect song, and here's why. Ah, uh, no, I can't. There's even as someone who likes writing um, essays with like theses that seem kind of unlikely or like pitching weird ideas. This does not make sense to me. My my best friend Feng Feng Lei, who is on Twitter at Small and Artless, she's lovely. Um, She's also going through like a Poirot period right now, and so that's primarily what we talk about. And she and I have talked back and forth about this, and that is a decision that baffles us. I, when I watched the trailer, or the first trailer, I watched it online. Um, I was a little bit agog, and then I watched the second one with uh, my friend in the room, and my my jaw just hung open, and it's just it. I don't think anyone knows how to market this in a way that will get 
younger people to come other than by using Imagine Dragons, which I don't think is the right choice. I think there there are other songs that are um, contemporary or that are popular that would fit much better with this. Um, none come to mind, which may sound hypocritical, but when I finally saw the trailer on the big screen, I laughed. It looks ridiculous. That's my worry. I'm still excited to see it, but it looks totally ridiculous. It's the combination of the Imagine Dragons and the attempt to lay out the story with very few with a lot of out of context clips because like out of context a lot of this dialogue which um some of it is reminiscent very vaguely reminiscent of like what's in the book and and or previous adaptations which sounds like kind of melodramatic camp but yeah i'm i'm we'll see what happens okay well, that's a perfect point then for us to do the last thing, which is give this our uh, rating going in what we think the movie is going to end up at. So this is on a scale of one to five, Kyle, and you can use half numbers if you want. What do you expect your final opinion of Murder on the Orient Express will be, knowing everything that you know now and nothing more? I expect it to be like a 6.5. That could be... Uh, scale scale of one to five. You oh, broke my you five. Broke my scale, okay, man. sorry. I heard one to ten. My apologies. Yeah, no. I was like, oh wow. <laughs> I expect it to be like a two point five because I think there will be definitely things of interest. I think there's some. Um, they've changed some characters about. They've um, kind of race bent the the cast a little bit, and I'm wondering if that is going to play any factor in it. But I I have hopes that it'll be good. But the reality is that going in, judging by the material that I've seen so far, it's just going to be really ridiculous, but perhaps fun to watch. So that's I'm keeping it at two point five. Okay, you know, and I've I've never done this on on the show before, but I'm going to I'm going to completely copy your score for no other reason other than I trust you. I've listened to you talk about I've, li- I've listened to you talk about the murder on the Orient Express for a while now on Twitter, but also hearing all of your thoughts on this today, uh, I don't know Agatha Christie's work very well. I don't certainly don't know this story or this film or its precursors very well. So, absent any additional information, I'm going to go ahead and say that you are right, and a 2.5 sounds fine to me as well. Okay, I dig it. I, I'm. I hope at least that the that Casper's mustache, which is like huge, it's like the biggest. Poirot mustache that there ever has been in the history of Poirot on screen, which I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing, honestly. Um, but I hope that at least warrants two of those stars. Yeah, for sure. This we're, we're verging in Bone Tomahawk, Kurt Russell territory with this mustache, and it is a wonderful thing to see. All right, well, uh, Kyle, we're going to go actually see this thing now, and uh, we're going to reconnect afterwards. So, I, I, are, are you ready? I hope you're ready. I'm very ready. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome back. Uh, I'm here with Kyle again, and we are prepared to talk about Murder on the Orient Express. I'm hesitant. Normally, I would tell you a little bit about the plot, but I think that with any good murder mystery, the devil is in the details. So you know who the major players are. You kind of know what the the instigating event is. There is a train. There is a murder. And only one man can solve the crime, and his name is not Hercules Perrault. It's Hercule Perrault or something like that. Hercule Perrault. That's better. That's so much better than mine. I'm going to go with that. 
Um, and that man, of course, is played, and the movie itself is directed by Kenneth Branagh. Now, in the last section, Kyle, you and I had talked a lot about what Branagh could, in theory, bring to the to the film. We've now seen it. So let's start with his performance as the actor. What did you think uh, of Kenneth Branagh as Hercule Perrault? Um, he's good. He's he's surprisingly competent. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about the different actors that have played Poirot on, uh, in, on the screen. Um, and they all like do, they all kind of um, try to handle certain elements of the character in different ways. Um, but like the essence uh, of, of his character, that he's kind of smug, that he's very precise and kind of dandyish, um, that he is, uh, he, he uses his little gray cells, which is like his gray matter, his intuition, um, all kind of factor in. And it's often in the mannerisms that uh, it, it's particular in terms of the way that actors play him, like in Albert Finney's performance in um, the 1974 Lumet film, or in David Suchet uh, on the TV series. It's it's all like a very precise characterization. Um, and Brian does like a, a solid job. Like his his version is not as stout. Um, his version is uh, it doesn't waddle. He doesn't seem to mince in his footsteps. Um, I was reading something about David Suchet and how he learned how to walk like Poirot for the TV series, and um, he found this one description that Agatha Christie had written, and he, she she had written something like. Um, he has like very small strides and that he minces his footsteps. And um, Suchet was like kind of clenched his buttocks in order to do that. But Brana doesn't really bother doing that. This is like a very, I think Brana's interpretation of Poirot, which is not inaccurate. Um, it seems to be like fairly uh, like a, a modern interpretation of who, who Hercule Poirot could be. And, like the whole film in in general is kind of like a next logical step to what an Agatha Christie adaptation would be. And so Brana's mustache is very, very flamboyant and very big, kind of like a hurricane hit it almost. Um, And he's, he's delightfully fastidious. He does like a a really solid job. I was quite impressed. Like um, the one thing that I thought was very strange was that I've always sort of interpreted that Poirot um, has like a queerness to him. Not that he's explicitly gay or anything, but there's a sensibility that in his dandy kind of presentation and his uh, fussiness about his appearance and, and about the details in, in his personal life um, and personal life kind of only extending into like what his apartment looks like, how he interacts with people, that there's this kind of queer sensibility to it. And what I find funny about this film adaptation is that they try to kind of graft onto the character that he has a, um, a discernible romantic past, a discernible romantic history, and that he has he kind of like has this old photograph of this woman that he once loved named Catherine. And I thought that was quite strange because even though they kind of very explicitly say that Poro is heterosexual. Barnard cannot convincingly um, sell that, he, which I think is good in a way. I think he still plays Poirot as this kind of quirky, uh, vaguely um, dandy character, this v- very quaint kind of almost asexual kind of character. 
who's like very fixated more on mannerisms and appearance than any kind of sexualized character characterization of that person. Well, I'm going to jump in here because you you brought up um, the photo of Catherine, and we'll talk about the rest of the cast in a minute. But it seemed almost that the, the instigating reason for having that photo um, was to sort of build on the relationship at the core of the film, which is between Brana and Daisy Ridley's character, um, the the governess. Did you did you think did it did it feel like the care that bit of development that bit of backstory and history for Poirot's character was that more about him or was that more to sort of build in and pay off why he might find this one person to be a confidant, a femme fatale, um, sort of the, I, I can't remember the name of the, the woman in the um, Sherlock Holmes Chronicles, oh, but like um, his. Uh, I, I know who you're talking about. Uh, yes. Irene Adler. Yes. His, I, the Irene Adler of Poirot in this series. Um, what was, what did, did, was there a connection there? Because Catherine seemed to sort of physically resemble Daisy Ridley's character at the very least. That didn't occur to me, actually. Um, I thought that, Catherine's presence in the film um, was most was part contrived, necess- uh, partly a contrived need or desire to have him have some sort of explicit romantic history, which he's never really had. Either he never really had it at all in the books. They hinted at it once in the series, um, but other than that, he's always been just he, his only history has been uh, in proximity to his uh, role in the Belgian police force, in the um, military, and as a detective. He doesn't really have a personal life beyond kind of like his relationship with uh, Captain Hastings and Miss Lemon, who's his secretary, um, and like the the details of his personality. But other than that, like not really a personal life. And um, so part contrived uh, need for a, a, that kind of romantic past, and then part like some sort of anchoring method for him to have uh some sort of moral compass almost um like they bring up uh paro's faith a little bit in this film um he's described uh he was described um in a piece by uh, uh, the la review of books as like a catholic sentimentalist Uh, so he's like he, he is catholic but he um, often has this um, push and pull between his um, faith and and what relationship he has to the law. And Catherine almost seems to be an embodiment of both, um, some sort of anchor to provide some sort of sentimental, moral, or, or emotional guidance in this particular case. Um, I didn't really get that there was... I didn't recognize or realize that... Um, that Catherine kind of looked like um, Mrs. Debenham. Um, and the way that they have Mrs. Debenham and, and portray her in this film is very interesting to me, or very strange to me at least, because it's very different from what it was in the book and in, in previous adaptations. And I was, I don't know if I agree necessarily that Mary Debenham uh, is framed as like a femme fatale. Um, I think because you have so many characters in this film, um, and in this story that it's both it would like be way easier to think of them as archetypes but it ends up being like much harder and i don't think um agatha christie's writing always was able to easily box those characters in they kind of mm. they 
they blend together archetypally, but remain dis- distinctive in terms of the details of their lives, which is what I've always found interesting about her work. Well, I want to ask you too about the um, you you mentioned this uh, just a second ago, talking about the the religious nature of the character and kind of the way that that loops back into the ending. Um, people that have seen the film or read the book or seen any other adaptations are familiar with this. If you haven't, a reminder: we are going to talk about the spoiler stuff, so back out now. But you know, there is there is the ending where Perrault does have a moment where he has to realize that these the the black and white view that he has of the world. And then this film at least makes it very explicit where he says there is, there is good and there is bad and there is nothing in between. You know, he has to compromise that, um, that, that view he has of both morality and of the people around him. This, at least in this adaptation, is, is played as sort of a really tragic minor chord to end the film on um, where this character, it kind of goes off into the sunset a little bit broken. Uh, is this the way that it comes across in some of the other adaptations of the work as well? I actually was surprised with the with they with the way that they handled this ending. Um, I thought it was handled much more interestingly than it has been in the past. In the Sidney Lumet film, it's a celebration. Um, there's this these great score that uh, major key strings. Um, and the he feels almost no compunction um, of kind of letting them off. Uh, and in the whereas the the TV version with David Suchet takes the opposite approach, and it's very very self serious. And it's even more even more than than this Brana version, this decision and inability to reconcile um, with what he conceives as the law or God's law and what justice, what actual justice may or may not look like really breaks him. And I think at one point, David Shea like falls onto his knees or something. And there's like a scene in which he's holding a rosary. It's the funny thing about the later period of, um, Agatha Christie's Poirot TV series is that uh, David Suchet got more religious in the, in behind the scenes, and he became like really Calvinist. So that in, ended up influencing some of the writing and the way that he approached the character. And so the TV series gradually became much more overtly religious or much more overtly self-serious about the way that it dealt with ethical quandaries within the series. And I was worried that the same thing would happen here. Whereas I think that in this film, there's like a relatively good balance between the two approaches to um, Corporo's reconciliation with what justice may or may not look like. And I don't agree that it totally breaks him. I think it's just something that he has come to have to reconcile with. Hey, he's, he's come to understand a new idea of what justice may look like, even though it's not necessarily what he thought it looked like. It's not necessarily what he has been taught or socialized to believe what, um, what justice or what, um, right, righteousness, um, always manifests as. Um, and so like the whole last dinner thing, last supper framing, um, of all the passengers at the table was a little on the nose, but I kind of was delighted by it at the same time. And there's definitely a line where Poro says that like the only people who can answer to the law are um, the only people that the only thing that people have to answer to is the law and God or something. And that's like a very self-serious line. But then as the 
um, solution presents itself as he begins to understand the perspectives of the people involved, I think that sort of dissipates into a much more nuanced understanding of what happened. And I think the long tracking shot at the end of the film is where we hear this voiceover of a letter that he's writing to Colonel Race, who appears in the next novel that may or may not be adapted. I think that I don't think he's broken. I think he's just kind of um, acclimating to the to a new idea of what what justice or or righteousness may look like. Well, I'm going to ask you too because you you mentioned the rest of the cast. Now we have um, kind of like a, a who's who, a murderer's row of up and coming actors, actors we recognize from other films, televisions, Broadway shows, and etc. And each of them are playing characters that will be eminently recognizable to Agatha Christie fans. Um, I only say this having had that conversation with you as an Agatha Christie fan and saying, I, I think that's, that's fair to say, what did you think about their portrayals of the rest of the people in this train? You know, the, the big reveal of who was involved, all of them being involved is something that uh, was new to me having not seen the novel before, but the amount of time that they had, and this movie is less than two hours long, is the it? amount of time they had to kind of yeah, it's an hour and fifty-four minutes long. Oh wow! And they have to they have to set up so much backstory, character beats, and motive for each of these characters and weave them together in this interesting way. Do you think that Murder on the Orient Express does a good job of doing this? Did you feel this reveal and then that they it was a moment that the film had earned, especially compared to some of the other adaptations, or did it feel like a beat that was inevitable? And so when they got there, they just got there by any means necessary. I'm. I, I my understanding is that, or my perception is that this film is going to be most enjoyable to people who already know Agatha Christie and who already know um, her sensibility and the different adaptations that have existed, not necessarily of this particular novel, but at least of other works. Because otherwise, it may I have heard like criticisms of it being dramatically inert, um, which I don't really agree with. It's like. The movie is kind of frivolous and stupid in a really fun way to me. Um, it's like charmingly ridiculous. And um, yeah, it's, I found it to be both a little stuffy and old fashioned, right. but in a really endearing manner. It was a movie, a type of movie that doesn't get made uh, yeah, a lot. That's what and so thinking. when it does, you're kind of like, oh, that's not, yeah, it's nice to see Hollywood, you know, go back to that part of its own it's, history. It's as very well. much a film made in, in a slightly different mode. And yet, updated to reflect certain um, certain other techniques or modes that are being used. I think it's the next logical step from the Sydney Lumet version. The Sydney Lumet version jumps with its like huge cast: Anthony Perkins, uh, Lauren Bacall, Sean Connery, etc. Jump started like a, a, a new way to monetize or capitalize on Agatha Christie's fame by like doing all these other huge big cast uh, adaptations like Death on the Nile had um, Mia Farrow and whatnot. And so with that in mind, I think these films are not really interesting. They're, they're only interesting. That's like the, maybe a flaw of this film and of other films is that they have this kind of sparkly bauble like quality to them. And they're only going to appeal to you if you like kind of this class porn. It's like a, a star class porn aspect to it where um, you're watching these elegant decadent things um, like the Brana shoots his bread very lovingly Brana shots shoots the kind of the the um, uh, upper class atmosphere of this train 
in a very loving way. And it's kind of tame and not really um, uh, out there. It's it's almost unassuming in many ways. And I think the cast does a fine job of doing what needs to be done. Like, I rolled my eyes many times during this film, but I, I had a really good time watching it because it is so deeply ridiculous. It is, like, kind of hilarious in, in certain changes that they've made, in certain pieces of dialogue that don't actually fit certain characters' um, motivations. Um, what I found really weird about Mary Debenham's character, played by Daisy Ridley, is that um, in the book, at least, she's like way ruder to Poirot. The, the, the two of them have like a little bit of a, a spar, sparring nature to their relationship. Not nearly as nice. Like uh, The first description that we have of Poirot in the novel is from that of Debenham, and she's very judgmental against him. She thinks she's he's totally ridiculous looking. And I think that fits the film. It is a totally ridiculous film um, that I think its biggest issue is that it will probably bore people because of its struggle to navigate how to make a really old story seem fresh. And I don't think it does it. I don't think it does that, but I also don't fault it for doing that. I think it's, um, it's like, it is, it is like an, an Agatha Christie adaptation should be. And then it's like, fun and a little forgettable now is it is it a testament to christie as a writer or to the adaptation um kind of the way it's able to sidestep a lot of the political and maybe cultural issues that are embedded in the film because there's certainly a lot of hinting and alluding and like nods and winks to the fact that we're in a war-torn european climate that we're you know referencing an america that is pre-civil rights movement and there is a lot of discrimination going on and the film as befits the fact that it as you said it, it is this high class elegant um, bourgeoisie kind of uh i just i like it class porn it is a class porn movie it, it is aware of the fact that this is that these things exist is it the the way that it sort of walks around it without necessarily ever engaging with it is that part of Christie or is that part of Brana trying to bring the film into 2007 or bring the book into 2017? I think it's a little bit of both. I think the discourse around any kind of um, political angle in her books was always something she walked around. It was always in the background. It's kind of thrown around kind of this, like um, the original character of, uh, of Dr. or Hold on, I'm looking him up. Sorry, the uh, Arbuthnot, played by Leslie Odom Jr. Um, his original character was actually a colonel, um, and he was stationed in India as opposed to a doctor being in India. Um, and he he's part of like British colonialism, and it's kind of those little details that have always been peppered into um, the Agatha Christie novels and stories, and. The way that she engages with politics, that she engages with class, that she engages with race, is always um, very tacit. There's rarely does she ever want to directly engage with those things and unpack them um, in necessarily a meaningful way intentionally. But I think by adding these little details, um, the there's a lot of interesting implications as to what those things mean and what their uh, social ramifications are. I think the only time she wants to explicitly engage in class or anything is like when there um, are these p- 
people from different class backgrounds who want who are in love and want to get married or something um and or when she's tackling kind of the anxieties of the english or british people um during the war or after the war that kind of um paranoia but for the most part that has always been uh, part of the background texture of her novels and of her stories and here it makes sense uh in the way uh, that that's done. I actually think it's quite fascinating because on the one hand, I think it's much more willing to engage with race than I initially thought it would be and much more willing to engage with race than previous adaptations have been. Um, and much more, it, it, all, the, the ending it's never, it, it, even though it's explicitly said in the um, 1974 adaptation that the reason why the ending is, can make sense that the conclusion he has come to make sense is because they're all from America and that you would only find people as diverse as this people from all these different backgrounds is if they were from or lived in the United States, even though previous the Lumet adaptation like explicitly said that this film is much more willing to confront the realities of what that actually may mean. Like it's, it's funny because the ending the uh, the conclusion, no one, I don't think, says the United States or America in the same way um, that it's said in the Lumet version. But the rest of the film, there seems to be like uh, he does. Hercule Poirot does ask all the characters if they've ever been to America. Um, he does seem to acknowledge that um, there are some interesting ways in which the characters navigate what their realities are or would be if they did live in the United States. And um, in the book, like Agatha Christie's conception of what American identity is, is mostly based on ethnic white people. Whereas this, because um, you have people being more explicitly racist and as racist as they are in the books for the, for the record, um, I think there's a much more tangible um, unpacking of what her conception of diversity in America would was versus what it actually is. Does that make sense? No, I follow that. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you touched on the book thing a little bit too, because it is, especially when you're watching a contemporary adaptation, it's, it's difficult to know if racial subtext is something that's been picked up on or was originally included um, so your honestly, your encyclopedic knowledge of, of um, about a hundred years worth of Agatha Christie <laughs> adaptations and novels comes in really handy when when unpacking some of that in this one. Yeah, it's really interesting because you have um, Willem Dafoe in a very very small role, and he's playing this Austrian. Uh, he he's playing at first this Austrian professor who's seen who's kind of sounds like a Nazi sympathizer, honestly, um, and he's talking about. He's making these very racist comments and very bigoted comments against Dr. Arbuthnot, who is black in, in this film. Um, and then, like, once he reveals himself to actually be um, Hardman, uh, uh, who is a, like a private detective who is who was like on the on the um, footsteps um, of Johnny Depp's character um, Ratchet, who is the one murdered. Um, he like says, uh, "I'm sorry for all the." cracks about colored people or something like that and it's like oh this is they're engaging with like Agatha Christie's racist history they're like it seems to me that Brana not only recognizes the the racial subtext of what um, Christie's conception of American national identity 
identity and diversity is, but also interrogating and critiquing like the racism in her books. Like she's she is certainly of her time. She kind of um, grew up in in an upper middle class um, lifestyle and family, and so whenever she does race in her books, it's very very questionable um and her character it is not only that her characters can be racist her characters are in the original book like i believe someone calls uh the um, marquez character in the original book uh dago which is a slur against italian people dago is thrown around throughout her novels several times it's in like anything from cards on the table to a murder is announced and I think what's fascinating um, is that they're willing to engage with the racism of the characters, but also the racism of her of, of her actual writing. Anytime that she's written about another locale, like part of the appeal of some of her books is James Bond esque, in the sense that they take place in um, different locations, like um, Egypt um, or uh, Baghdad, and to what degree she can characterize these places accurately is often sidelined by the way that she exoticizes them and heavily bases them on like very reductive stereotypes and tropes. And I like that this film is, I think saying woke would be maybe to, to, to <laughs> maybe a little bit generous, but I, I like that it is willing to engage with that history and, a much more interesting way than I expected. So what you're saying is the movie should have been called Hercule Perwoke. <laughs> Sorry. Oh gosh. I, oh, yeah, that was a pun. I had to work that in there at the very end. Ah, uh, gosh. All right, no, no, no. Let's um let's 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 give this then, um, kind of going based on everything we've talked about, summarize it in in, in a score. And I know that's that's sort of boiling it down a little bit, but Going into the film, you said you were going to give it probably about a 2.5. Um, uh-huh. Coming out of it, we've talked about the fact that it is it is a very shiny penny. Uh, it, the performances are, in a lot of ways, surprising, um, maybe better than you expected if you're a longtime Agatha Christie fan or just what you expected if you're not, that it, it is not necessarily woke, but it's not it doesn't shy away from leaning into the subject matter a little bit. Putting all of that together, Kyle, what do you, what do you have on a scale of 1 to 5? Um, for the final score for Murder on the Orient Express? Uh, I would give it three and a half stars. Three and a half, 3.75, honestly. That's a big jump. That's, yeah. that, that is probably one of the bigger jumps I've actually had on the show. That that means you walked out of that feeling pretty good, I would assume. I, I walked out of, out of it very happy. I was quite surprised because I... Again, I like rolled my eyes through most of it because it's like very ridiculous, and uh, but it's much funnier than than I was expecting. Um, Penelope Cruz in in particular is really really good, um, but yeah, I thought it was delightful in a very old fashioned way, um, and uh, your mileage may definitely vary, especially in terms of your familiarity. I think the fun of it is like comparing it to other adaptations. Yeah, I think um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say for me I'm gonna give it about a 3.0 with some room for growth. Uh, I think that that your mileage definitely will vary. I think that there is always a joy in somebody that doesn't ever do a good job of you know, puzzling out thrillers um, or murder mysteries as they're going on. I've always have a soft spot in my heart for the big reveal where the detective explains everything that's going on because I you know after a certain point I don't pay attention to red herrings so. I like these types of films. I've always had, I've always liked these types of movies. 
I think the performances across the board are really fun. I cannot, I really want Josh Gad to focus all of his energy on becoming the next John Polito. I kind of think <laughs> he gets there a little bit with this character. And I think that's a good place for him to end up. But yeah, I, I will say that, that uh, again, and I brought this up a couple of times, but not being someone familiar, as familiar with Agatha Christie's work, this movie did make me want to go seek out some of the other adaptations. And if there is a sequel to this, as is pretty well set up by the end of the film, um, I don't think I would be disappointed to go watch that. I, th- I think I would. I would definitely watch it. All right, Kyle. Well, um, if people- oh, wait, wait. Oh, go hey, ahead. I, no. Yeah, you. Yeah. I, I want to talk about um, Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, yes. Let's throw it out. Okay, so Michelle Pfeiffer is really good in this. I'm slightly disappointed because I was hoping she'd be more motor mouthy, but she plays Mrs. Hubbard, who uh, in the book is uh, like alluded to being uh, a little bit of a gold digger um, who enjoys the company of men by all means. And in this one, she's very funny. She and that element of her promiscuity is very much accentuated, and I thought that was a lot of fun. And I, I like Michelle Pfeiffer in things. Um, and one other scene that I thought was really quite delightful, at least in a meta in a meta way, is um, the conversation that Poirot has uh, with uh, Ra- um, Ratchet's valet, um, who is played by Derek Jacobi. And both Derek Jacobi and Kenneth Branagh have very long histories on the stage, especially doing Shakespeare. And I thought having them do a scene together was a lot of fun. And one of the things about the cinematography that I want to mention is that uh, I think like some of the f- formal approach to this film is really quite ambitious. Like there's a scene in which Poro is walking w- walking down um, the train to his um, to his compartment, and it's one long uh, one long tracking shot. And I thought that was really very reminiscent of the play or a Touch of Evil. And I like the scenes in which um, the camera is kind of looking into the room where everyone is framed. Uh, everyone is framed in kind of the, the dining area. And as it's looking through this glass, the glass distorts their image so that they mm-hmm. almost appear double, which I thought was a clever little way of, of talking about their duplicitous nature. Yeah, I'll back you up on that. I thought that the, the movie, if you go into it thinking it's just going to be a lot of static shots of, of people in train cars talking to other people in train cars. To his credit, Brana does a really interesting job of playing with space, playing with the both the amount of space they have in the train, but also how claustrophobic some of the sections are, especially when you're full with a bunch of the different passengers. It's visually a lot more interesting than you would think just based on the trailers and, yeah, and a yeah. fair amount of time off the train in ways that works really well too. So it is it is a prettier and, and and more mobile movie than I think a lot of people would give it credit for. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely funny that he's ad- he's sort of leaned into it was shot on 65, 70 millimeter, and then the entire film takes place in a train. I, it's very it reminds me of like what Tarantino did for the Hateful Eight. Well, you know, sometimes you just got to shoot on seventy millimeter to say that you shot on seventy millimeter. Of course. Of and now course. he can, so he can go into that back room at director parties where everybody who only shot on 70 millimeter gets to talk and hang out. Well, Kyle, let me ask you, um, for people that want to learn a little bit more um, about the movie or your writing, please take a moment and talk about where you can be reached on social media. But if you have written anything specifically about murder on the murder on the Orient Express, um, you know, where can people go and search that out and find it as well? Um, I have not yet written anything about Murder on the Orient Express, but I believe I'm going to have a couple of pieces up um, 
but you can find out when and where they go up. I don't want to uh, jump the gun in, t- in case they don't get published. Sure. Um, but you can find me uh, on social media at Tyle Kerner, T-Y-L-E-K-U-R-N-E-R. Um, it's just a spoonerism of my name because I'm very creative. Uh, and you can find my writing elsewhere at um, Paste Magazine, um, Esquire, The Village Voice, and Slate. As for uh, as for myself and for this podcast, you can follow uh, One Perfect Pod on Twitter at, at One Perfect Pod. You can certainly follow the website um, that is Film School Rejects slash One Perfect Shot at either of those ads at One Perfect Shot at Film School Rejects. You can find both myself and Kyle there as well from time to time um, our writing. And if you enjoyed this, please be sure to share, to leave a comment, to give us a score or an iTunes review. All those little bits help as we try and build up the After the Credits brand and bring you more good and interesting reviews with film critics before and after the movies. Otherwise, Kyle, thank you so much for joining me and we'll hope to have you back on soon. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thank you.